to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We will be looking at verses 12 through 20. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Lord, these are wonderful truths. And I pray that even as you expose lies, that you would also expose your truth, that we might treasure Your Word and the work that You have done for us. God, that we might be stronger, wiser, able to resist foolishness and temptation. And God, I pray that You would strengthen us to live according to the life that You've designed for us, particularly in regard to sexuality. And Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom to know how to make your word clear. Guard me from saying anything that would be amiss. And Lord, guard your children from any error or misunderstanding. Lord, we know we need you. So we come to you. We come to your word longing to be helped and assisted. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen, that you would assist us through your word this afternoon. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin, I want to just take a moment and have us remember just the massive benefits that we have received for being in Christ. Just consider the truth that we have been promised eternal life. We've also been adopted into God's family. And because we've been adopted into God's family, we are also fellow heirs of the kingdom of God along with Jesus Christ. 
fellow heirs with the Son of God, of the kingdom of God. But we will not receive that kingdom until Christ comes again and establishes it. And until that time, we will struggle with sin. And this struggle, this fight, along with fulfilling the Great Commission, constitute what I would call our great warfare. It's the good fight that we are fighting. And as we saw in Paul's second letter to Timothy earlier, our good fight is primarily a fight for truth against lies. So even though we are no longer slaves to sin, we still fight, we still get duped. Yes, we still desire to honor Christ with our life, but we also still fall prey to lies. The same lies we once believed in our lost state. And moreover, we often, even as Christians, willfully choose to sin. And this is why the Apostle John exhorts us to not love the world in 1 John chapter 2. It's a familiar passage, but I'll read it again for us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now just consider how these elements of worldliness that, Paul, that, sorry, not, not, that John elucidates here, how they are inheritant, inherent to the, the following lies. The most common lies, I think, that we fall prey to. For instance, the lie that this life is all that matters. It suggests that we just need to forget about future judgment, forget about the future promises. What matters is right now, the opportunities that lie before us. Therefore, if that's true, find what you like and do whatever, whatever you can to take hold of what you want. The lust of the eyes. It's okay to make it your ambition to be admired, to be longed for, to make a name for yourself, to be remembered. The pride of life. Or the lie... Just do what you feel like. The lust of the flesh. These lies are at the foundation of almost every sin that we commit as Christians. And the particular lies that Paul is dealing with in today's passage surround that last one, the lust of the flesh, and in particular, sexual immorality. So, just to give our context in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been discussing lawsuits... And he's moving from the Corinthians' inability to judge disputes, which is leading to these lawsuits, to their inability to handle lies, in particular, lies regarding sexual immorality. So you will note that last week, Paul confronted their inability by asking questions. And 
His tactic was to expose to them how little they actually understood truth, how how they actually weren't as wise as they thought they were. The Corinthians thought they were pretty wise, but they keep getting duped by lies that are actually pretty weak. But the truth is, we get duped by those same lies even today. So just consider the list of lies that people believe regarding sex. What's presented in the movies and literature as the most exciting sexual encounter tends to be with a person you barely know, who's passionately drawn to you, and who just simply can't help themselves because they are drawn to your personal magnetism. The sexual encounter is as simple as one, two, three, and both partners leave feeling satisfied and feeling like a million dollars. Now that's comical when compared to reality. But that's the typical presentation we receive in the media. But because we receive that message in various forms again and again and again, that is actually what most or at least many people believe their experiences should be like. They don't just assume that it's real, but that it's normal. And so having such grand expectations, when they eventually taste reality, they feel greatly disappointed. Some feel deeply ashamed, thinking that something must be wrong with them. Others arrogantly blame their partner. And often this leads them to pursuing satisfaction elsewhere. And they become enslaved to various things, including pornography, and even prostitution. But the the consequences of these lies are not just simply a failure to find satisfaction. They're enslavement to sin, permanent emotional scars, memories that will never be erased, shame, humiliation, fear, brokenness, Shattered trust. When the truth is that the greatest intimacy is the product of confidence. Confidence in one another, which is developed through repeated expressions of sacrifice and love. Despite what Cosmo and GQ suggest, the secret to a great love life is not in fulfilling our passions, but in building trust. And consistently and frequently demonstrating our love and our respect for our spouses in every aspect of life. That's the secret. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what God instructs husbands and wives to do to one another. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Wives, respect your husbands. And when we do that, consistently that's what leads to an exciting and passionate love life in 1 Corinthians 6:12 through 14 we will see that Paul exposes some of the lies that the Corinthians had, had heard regarding sex but what's really cool and i think what really stands out to me in this passage is that Paul doesn't just stop there 
but he really dives deep into theology. And he does that because he, he wants them to not just ward off temptation. He doesn't just simply say, don't do that, but he explains the reasons why, and he ties those reasons why they shouldn't engage in sexual immorality to their salvation. The reasons why they shouldn't engage in this has everything to do with their communion with Christ. The fact that they have been saved. As we'll see. So, let's look first at how Paul exposes lies regarding particularly liberty and design. He begins in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So this is the first phrase he deals with. That is, all things are lawful for me. So it's possible that this was just a quote that was just pervasive in Corinth, that unbelievers mentioned to one another in order to justify their carnality. And it's, it's along the same lines as what myself and my siblings used to do to justify our bad behavior. We'd say, it's a free country. You can't tell me to do what I want to do. Or you can't tell me not to do what I want to do. And it's also possible, though, possible, though, that this was a statement made by somebody within the church. And if this is the case, it suggests that because we've been granted forgiveness, we don't have to bear the consequences for our sins. We can continue to sin without any fear. And in fact, many of my so-called um, Christian friends who are sexually active in college use this very justification to justify their immorality. God will forgive me. Paul basically offers two responses to the statement. The first is, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. His point is that just because something's legal doesn't mean that you should do it. And even if a Christian will be forgiven for their sin, that doesn't mean that it's good to do or that it's committing that sin is actually going to be beneficial to the kingdom. This reminded me um, of a time I was listening to a, to a popular preacher and he once said this to some young men who were justifying their immaturity using this same sort of philosophy. This is what he said. So you work one part-time job so you can play more guitar or frisbee golf. That's dumb. You spend all your money on a new car or truck or toys or gear or clothes or gambling or fantasy football. Dumb. Some of you say, well, it's not a sin. Neither is eating your lawnmower. It's just dumb. There are a lot of things that Christian guys do that aren't evil. They're just dumb and childish. So that's essentially Paul's point. Just because something's not illegal or off limits doesn't make it good. And of course, sexual immorality is off limits. The next argument is one of liberty. But notice that Paul sees right through this lie. So the lie, the lie is essentially indulge in this and you will know real freedom. When in fact, engaging in sexual immorality will only enslave you. 
Sexual sin will dominate you, but it will lure you in, causing you to believe that you are the one, in fact, dominating it. But sexual sin doesn't give any more freedom than an 18th century Portuguese slave trader would. Paul exposes the trap and the ambush that's been set by this lie. And he says, I will not be dominated by anything. So it's this offer of freedom. You're free to do everything when in fact what's going on is this is just a trap to dominate you. It's not about freedom at all. The second lie is where he says the food is for stomach and the stomach for food. And really the argument here boils down to one of purpose or design. The end for which something exists. Your stomach craves food, therefore you should eat. It's capable of digesting food, eat food. Your body craves sex and is capable of sex, therefore you need to have sex. Design plus desire equals purpose is the idea. But take a second and use that same sort of logic with your fingernails. You desire to pick your nose. Fingernails are designed perfectly for picking your nose. Therefore, pick your nose. The point is, urge and ability don't equal purpose. Don't equal, this is what you ought to do. Paul's response is, God will destroy both. So notice this, he's saying, you want to consider your end? Well, truly recognize the end. He, he considers the end and then draws it out to the ultimate end. God will destroy both in the end. Paul completes his response then by making explicit that the body is not meant or designed for sexual immorality. You want to consider design then? Understand, Christian, your, bro- your body was designed to be used by the Lord. It's designed for the Lord. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And this really is the key principle that, he, that, he, that we should walk away with. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What he's talking about here is our oneness with Christ. Our bodies are for the Lord. They're for the Lord in that God has given us these bodies so that we might serve him and exalt him. And he is for our bodies in that he inhabits them now and will glorify them eventually. And notice that really what Paul is doing is he's having these Corinthians combat these lies by having them set their mind on things above. Understand your ethics in light of your ultimate design. You can understand what's right and what's wrong by remembering what Christ has done for you and by considering what you've been promised. I want to take just a moment and just go even further and, and, and meditate upon this amazing truth of our oneness with Christ. What, what, are, what systematic theology describe, uh, terms this oneness with Christ, it calls it the mystic union. And Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a, a well-used systematic theology, 
writes this about our mystic union with Christ. He says, The sinner must feel his dependence on Christ in the very depths of his being, in the subconscious life. Hence, he is incorporated in Christ and as a result experiences that all the grace which he receives flows from Christ. He is for them a perennial fountain springing into everlasting life. Likewise, just as Christ shared the labors, the sufferings, and temptations of his people, they are now made to share his experiences. His sufferings are, in a measure, reproduced and completed in the lives of his followers. They are crucified with him and also will arise with him in the newness of life. So in essence, what this is saying is that everything we need flows from Christ. Everything we need, Christians, comes from Christ. And everything that happens to us happens to him. Remember what Paul said, or Jesus said to Saul when he was on his road to Damascus? Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? Everything that happens to us happens to him. And the more we understand this, the less enticing sin will appear. And we'll see it for what it really is, how hideous sin actually is. And this is the central truth. Christ participates in what we do and he provides us everything that we need. That's what's central regarding our oneness with Christ. And I tried to come up with an analogy. I was thinking about this last night and all sorts of things and nothing really seemed to work. And then it hit me. Um, there was an example right beside me that might work. Now, the analogy breaks down quickly, but just think about this. Think about a baby in its mother's womb. The mother provides that baby with everything it needs. It's nourished, it's protected, and it's comforted as it grows, as it develops. But the mother is also an active participant in everything going on with the baby. Now notice also, this is cool, there's a sweet oneness that a mother shares with her baby that's immediately evident after the birth. Mom wants her baby, and baby wants nothing but her mom or his mom. And in that vein, we are like babies. All of us are like babies developing in Christ. And everything that happens to us happens to him. And he's giving us all that we need. And this theology continues to deepen in the next section, where Paul elucidates the truth that sex brings about this oneness also, but a different kind of oneness. And he returns to his method of unmasking their supposed wisdom again by asking these rhetorical questions. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So that is, if they're part of the body of Christ, if they're one with Christ, offering the members of Christ must be appropriate. Offering the members of Christ to a prostitute. Is that what you're, is what he's asking them? You think that's okay? Paul's answer is highly emphatic. Never. What it, and actually in the Greek it means, may it cease to be. 
Perish the thought. What a horrible idea. Eradicate such an idea out of your mind that such a thing could actually happen. Verse 16, or you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. What he's asking is, don't you know that sex brings about oneness? Look, just consider this. You're one with Christ. Sex brings about oneness. Therefore, Christ is becoming one with the prostitute. And he offers biblical proof. He cites proof from Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. So he cites the verse that was in the very beginning of sex. When sex was first instituted. Where God declared his design for it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so the phrase the two shall become one flesh means that the union is not merely temporal. It's not just talking about a physical temporal union. It's permanent. There's a permanence. You are giving your most personal gift away. And you're retaining that of another person. Both people are permanently tattooed with the most intimate part of the other's being. The New Testament commentator Garland said this, Sex is something that involves the whole self in surrender to another. And you can remember the context. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So consider our oneness with Christ and then consider what happens when a person is joined with a prostitute. You're offering up something that has been declared holy. A holy vessel. You're offering that holy vessel up to evil. And the idea is that you're offering something holy really to a demon. And not that the prostitute is a demon, but that she represents the realm of evil, that which is in complete contrast to the purposes of Christ. Consider what happened in Daniel chapter 5 when King Belshazzar took the holy vessels that were designated for the temple of God and used them for such practices. Daniel after interpreting, saying he will interpret the, the handwriting that was given on the wall, says to Belshazzar, You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then he gives his interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. He says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Secondly, you've been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Thirdly, 
your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then it says, that very night, Belshazzar was killed and his kingdom was divided. The reason God responded so severely to Belshazzar, and he was actually pretty gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, I believe, was because of what Belshazzar was doing. He was offering up the temple, the holy vessels of God that were used in the temple of God and using them to drink wine and praise the gods of earth and stone. And God would not tolerate such behavior, even from an unbeliever. So Christian, you're not simply offering up a holy vessel to evil in sexual immorality, but due to his oneness with you, you are forcing Christ to participate in the act. You're forcing Christ to participate in the act with you. And due to your oneness with him, Just consider the fact that Christ wouldn't yield to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Three times Satan offered him things and Christ kept his purity, kept his holiness. Why did he do that? Why did he say no? Not just because he didn't want what Satan was offering. He knew God would eventually give it to him. If Christ would have given in then, he couldn't have accomplished his purpose, which was what? To secure our salvation. So Christ kept himself holy to secure our salvation on the cross. And now, if we engage in sexual immorality, we are forcing Christ to participate in that immorality with us. Which is why Paul says what he says next. Flee sexual immorality. Flee like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. And then as if he, what he'd said wasn't enough, Paul continues to give an explanation for this command to flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? What verse 18 is doing is it's highlighting the uniqueness of sexual sin. See, unlike every other sin that the body is involved with, sexual sin is a sin against the body itself. So, what's unique about sexual sin? Well, it's a combination of the two main truths Paul has been highlighting. The permanent oneness that's created through sexual union. And secondly, the truth that the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells you. Since the Holy Spirit dwells you, your body is a temple. And earlier, Paul, Paul had noticed this truth when he described the whole Christian church as the temple. Every believer is part of the temple of God. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's also true that every individual Christian exists, exists as a temple. And sexual immorality, therefore, permanently desecrates the temple of God. 
because of that permanent oneness that takes place in sexual immorality. Remember the verse Paul quoted earlier. If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now, like the Corinthians, we live in a hyper-sexualized society. And so sexual sin just doesn't seem all that shocking to us. It seems normal. Even when committed by Christians. But that should be nearly unthinkable, given these truths. Just consider that when Antiochus Epiphanes, who's kind of a precursor in the, in the book of Daniel, he's a precursor, a type of Antichrist. What Antiochus Epiphanes did is he set up a temple of Zeus in, sorry, an, an altar to Zeus, a statue of Zeus, in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he um, desecrated the altar by offering up swine's blood. And that desecration led to a full-scale revolt in Jerusalem. And eventually, the defeat of the Greek armies that were in Jerusalem by the Maccabees. Now, if that's how the Jews responded to a desecration of God's temple. A temple that was absent the presence of God. This was the second temple. The other temple had been destroyed by... The second temple had been destroyed by um, the... The Babylonians. So that temple was absent the presence of God. And if that's how the Jews responded, the temple absent the presence of God, how much more should we be appalled at sexual immorality in the church? And apparently the Corinthians assumed that because they had been freed from slavery to sin, that the law gave them just license to do whatever they felt like. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because they had been washed. They had been sanctified. They had been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. Because of that, they were no longer free to live as they pleased. See, they were, they were once just this broken down shack that God saved and restored and turned into a temple of the Holy Spirit that God Himself would indwell. And everybody knows that everybody knows what a temple is for. It's exclusively used for the worship of Yahweh. And just again, remember, remember what Jesus Christ did to the money changers when he discovered money changers in the temple. What would he have done if he discovered prostitution, sexual immorality taking place within the temple itself. He says, you're not your own. Christian, you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When you were saved, Jesus didn't save you simply to secure your salvation. He did save you to secure your salvation, but not just that. He saved you so that you could participate in His works and serve Him. Jesus purchased your ransom with His blood so that you could serve Him. And that's what Paul is trying to elucidate with this description of saying you were bought with a price. It's imagery uh, from 
slaves being transferred from ownership of one slaveholder to another. It doesn't picture a slave being sold to a god and then being set free. But rather the slave is going from one master to another master. So formerly we were slaves of sin, children of wrath. But now we've been bought with a price and now we are slaves of God. Romans 6, 16. And so because we've been set free from, from sin, we are not free to live as we please. And certainly, He didn't purchase us just to have us return back to our slave master of sin. We've been purchased by Christ to serve Him. And therefore, we need to glorify God with our bodies. They're His. And that's the key principle, the command, glorify God in your body. This is the key truth that should dictate all of our choices. So if you're sitting there wondering, what's okay for me to do? This is your answer. Glorify God in your body. This is what should dictate all of our ethical choices. We're not our own. We belong to God. So recognize, seeking to glorify God in all that you do is not ideal Christianity. It's basic Christianity. You see that? It's not just that's what the great super Christians do, the saints, the people that have, you know, feasts named after them. This is basic Christianity. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And any suggestion to the contrary is a lie straight from the pit. I remember as a young Christian, for the longest time, I believe that as long as I didn't engage in sexual intercourse, everything was free game. I remember having that discussion with a youth pastor and was, not, was hardly successfully convinced. And it's because I wasn't exposed to this verse. So if you want to know how far is too far, just ask yourself, Will this act glorify God? And if that's not clear enough, just think, will engaging this, if I engage in this, will I be excited to share this experience, whatever I did, with my spouse? Will I be excited to share it with my parents? Will, will, I, have, will I be excited to share this with other members of the body of Christ? Well, if not you're probably not glorifying God. If you'd be ashamed of it, you're not glorifying God. But if it glorifies God, you would be. Notice that Paul doesn't simply respond to the Corinthian confusion by simply saying, flee temptation and glorify God. So he could have just done that. He could have just said, you guys doing that's stupid of course you shouldn't engage in prostitution don't engage in sexual immorality just be good but he doesn't he dives deeper into the issue helping them recognize because he realizes that's what the, the root of this if they're being led astray into finding seeking satisfaction in sexual immorality they don't really understand what christ has done for them They've forgotten who they really are. And so that's why he draws out this oneness that we have with Christ. 
So he's combating these lies imbibed by the Christians with truth. And it's because Paul knows that our susceptibility to temptation correlates to our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. Our susceptibility to temptation correlates to our understanding and conviction of the gospel. If you find yourself easily duped into temptation, you need to better grasp, not just know truths about the gospel, but grasp in your heart, in your soul, meditate on the reality of what Christ has done for you and who you are in him. Again, not just knowing gospel truths, but being so convinced of the real consequences and nature of sin, the real cost that was paid for your redemption, and the real glory that we even possess now, but all the more in the future, in being called children of God. The more we understand and treasure these truths, the more we will be able to resist these lies that get propagated within the world. I want to close just with two simple applications. Meditate daily on these core truths of the gospel and what Christ has done for you. The way you resist temptation is recognizing who you are as a Christian. When you recognize who you are as a Christian, what Christ has done, the cost paid for your redemption, the fact that Christ himself indwells you, those things do not appear, appear appealing. They're disgusting. They're appalling. Secondly, be aggressive in exposing the lies of Satan, particularly those lies regarding sex. Ephesians 5.11 Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 Even though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now you have to just simply exalt in the providence of God that this sermon lands on Super Bowl Sunday. So a lot of people, a lot of us, I'm imagining, are going to go from here and, you know, if you've DVR'd or TVO'd or whatever the, um, the Super Bowl, um, you'll be exposed to racy halftime shows and commercials. And one of the things you can do here is, one, you can just avoid that altogether, but you can also do what, what I call um, play the find the lie game while you're watching this the Super Bowl this evening. What I mean by that is throughout the day, as you come across billboards and you come across advertisements and magazine articles, especially if you're with your kids, ask your kids if they can find the lie in it. And even ask yourself, as you see these lies, what truths in the scripture can I use to combat what's being communicated in this commercial? Or in this magazine. And do that with your kids. So that you can help them 
see the lie that's being communicated. Because if you're not exposing that lie and you're not helping them see the truth, chances are they're believing the lie. Just think about how easily you, you've bought into those lies before. And if you've fallen, chances are, especially with how much more lies we're surrounded by, especially regarding sex, how much more likely they are going to be duped by them as well. And that's our job as parents. We've got to help them see the truth about sex and about every other lie that gets twisted uh, within the media. Let's pray. Father, I'm I'm deeply thankful for the promise that we have been washed, sanctified, and justified because You know my sin. And God, I would not have anyone here follow into the stupidity that I stupidity that I have engaged in. God, we've heard time and time again in testimonies, even in our own church, how how easily it is to fall into the trap of believing the lies regarding sex that we see in this world. And I pray that you would help us to resist those lies. Help us to see them for as false as they are. But also help us to see the truth about how good and how wonderful it is that sex is the way that you've designed it within marriage. And what intimacy can be created when we respect one another and sacrifice for one another and love one another as you called us to. God, that we would take our cues from your word and not from the world. And God, I pray specifically also for anyone here who has been ripped apart by the destructive consequences of sexual immorality. Whether as an unbeliever or as a believer, Lord, I pray that you would help them to know with confidence the grace that abounds to them in Jesus Christ. That they would not despair in discouragement over those scars, but that they would find life in the unity that they have with you. And that such an understanding of the life that they have with you and the promises that are theirs in Christ Jesus is what would compel them to resist every temptation to go back. And so for all these things, for an understanding of your mercy and grace and forgiveness, but also to to have grace to resist the lies as we go out from here, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you give us the grace that we need to be the people that you've called us to be with full joy and confidence and glory as you've designed us. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.